All right, Revelation chapter 11, Revelation chapter 11. Remember the whole theme of the book of Revelation is that the king is coming, and uh, we are getting to that point. Time at this point in Revelation chapter 11, time is about to run out for the world. The Lord has sent two witnesses to preach about um, his broken heart over Uh, humanity's rebellion against him, and to call uh, the world to repentance before it's too late. And and while some will repent, a large part of the world will rage at the message that these two witnesses preach, and they will conspire uh, for a way to silence them. And when they do finally silence them, they will think they've won a great victory. But the sad truth is that the death of these two witnesses is the signal that the world is now out of time and their doom is sure. So chapter 11, I'm going to read the first four verses, and then we'll pick up our study in verse 5. We did the first four verses last week. John says, and there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel who had been standing beside me said, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple, leave out, do not measure it, for it is given unto the Gentiles. And the holy city shall they tread underfoot for forty and two months. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy for a thousand two hundred and threescore days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed." These have power to shut, to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. So we were introduced to these two guys last week um, and how they will be preaching a message of repentance to the world. Um, but the world will not like this message. It, and so God is going to empower these two witnesses to do miracles, to punctuate their sermons, their messages. It mentions first off that God will give them the ability, the empowerment to supernaturally protect themselves. It says, if any man will hurt them, if any man should plan or try to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth instead of preaching this time. In other words, uh, be careful how you critique the preacher. Just kidding. There's no fire here, not unless I light a match. Um, This is different. This is not um, the idea of, oh, they're going to change their words. No, this is literal fire that will come out of their mouth, and it will devour their enemies. It'll completely destroy anyone who tries to harm them or plans to harm them. And then it says, and if any man will hurt them, plans to hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. It's necessary for it to happen this way so that it will leave no doubt as to the source. Uh, Maybe you didn't figure this out already, but uh, fire doesn't normally come out of people's mouths. This is supernatural. This is unique. And so the idea is it will leave no doubt to the source of where this fire is coming from. No, it was not a really bad burrito. This is a supernatural death at the hands of two human flamethrowers. That is not a normal thing. In addition to that, God also gives them authority to bring about additional judgments however they see fit. It says these have power, the authority, the jurisdiction, the right to act. 
God just gives them the ability that you, you could do this as often as they want. So in addition to the seven seal judgments, the seven trumpet judgments, the seven bowl judgments, these guys are going to, just as they see fit, do these things. It mentions they will have the authority to shut heaven so it doesn't rain when they're teaching. They'll have authority over waters to turn them to blood, to smite the earth with all plagues. And it's on however they see fit, however they feel that it would best communicate the message or, or punctuate the message that they're preaching. Now, all of these things, fire, you know, from heaven, drought, uh, water, uh, water, turning water to blood, plagues, these are hallmarks of Moses and Elijah's ministries. You won't find these things in other people's ministries in the Old Testament, which is why I shared last week, I do think these are who the two witnesses are. Um, you can get the, the message from last week, listen to it on the app. Uh, you know, if you want to go into that, I'm not going to go into that anymore this week. But whoever these guys are, we can't know for sure, for three and a half years, they will preach and do the miraculous to get Israel and the world's attention. And so when that time is done, when their ministry will come to an end, is when humanity's time to repent is up. That signifies the end of their ministry. And so verse 7, we get to that three and a half year period. For three and a half years of the great tribulation, the first three and a half years, they will preach and call people to repentance, backing it up with the miraculous. However, at the three and a half year point, their job will be done. Verse 7, and when they have finished, completed their testimony, so halfway into the great tribulation, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwell upon the earth. Here it says that they will be killed by this beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit. Now, the word here for beast normally is used for a wild animal, but in Titus chapter 1 verse 12, Paul uses it to refer to wicked people. Um, and so this is a person, but it mentions that he ascends out of the bottomless pit. Now, we were introduced to the bottomless pit in Revelation chapter 9 when it mentions there was an angel of the bottomless pit, a fallen angel, and he was given the key to the bottomless pit, and he, this, he opened uh, uh, I'm sorry, the shaft to the bottomless pit, and out of it came these demon locusts from chapter 9. So what does it mean here that this wicked person comes up out of the bottomless pit. The bottomless pit's not a place for people. It's a place for unclean spirits, for, for fallen angels, for demons. You know, what is this thing? Well, in Revelation 17, verse 8, it identifies who this is for us. It's the Antichrist. The beast that you saw, Revelation 17, verse 8, the beast that you saw was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go unto perdition. The Antichrist is called the son of perdition. 
And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names are not written in the book of life. We know this from multiple places that it mentions this beast that rises up out of the bottomless pit is the Antichrist. We will learn more about him in chapters 13 and 17 and how a person can come up out of a place that is not an abode for people when we get to those chapters. So hopefully that whets your appetite for a little bit later on in Revelation. But the Antichrist, it mentions that he will make war against the two witnesses. Now, the phrase make war there refers to single combat. This is the place that anyone who has come against the two witnesses has always been turned into a human piece of bacon. This is the place where no one has succeeded. This is the place where everyone else has failed. And this is the place where it says the Antichrist will succeed. He shall overcome them. He will be the victor in this single combat, and he shall kill them. The Antichrist will succeed where everyone else has failed, but it won't be because he was the greater. It's going to be because God has done reasoning with the world. You know, one of the most awful judgments is when God gives us exactly what we want. It's one of the most awful judgments God can give us is when he gives us exactly what we want. And based on the world's response in the verses that come after verse 7, that's, this is clearly what they wanted. For it says in verse 8 that their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which, is spirit, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and nations are going to throw a party. Now, I love that John here tells us, he says, that their dead bodies shall lie where? Where are they going to be killed? In the street of the great city. And then he tells us, which spiritually is called Sodom and Gomorrah, but then factually, where our Lord was crucified. Literally, where our Lord was crucified. So he's referring to what city? Jerusalem, right? But spiritually, the word there spiritually means symbolically, allegorically, figuratively. Uh, It's interesting because uh, there are those who I disagree with, but doesn't make them bad people, that would say, well, Revelation is an allegorical book. It's a spiritual book. It's not literal. You can, if you try to understand it literally, you're going to come up with weird stuff. If that's the case, why does John need to tell us when he's speaking figuratively if he's already speaking figuratively? It doesn't make any sense that John would do that, that he'd point out, oh, by the way, I'm speaking figuratively here. Their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city. Why does he need to settle us that? Well, the great city normally refers to Babylon, doesn't only refer to Jerusalem, and yet, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. How is Jerusalem like Sodom and Egypt? Well, this is not the first comparison the Lord makes uh, from Jerusalem to Sodom and Egypt. In the book of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 16, uh, verses 49 and 50, he does the same thing through the prophet there. In Ezekiel 16, 49, he says, Behold, this was the iniquity of your sister, Sodom, and its pride, fullness of bread, an abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. And they were haughty, they were prideful, and they committed abomination, sexual morality before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw good. The sin of Sodom was pride, materialism, and immorality. And God judged Sodom for that. And that was what was going on in Jerusalem at that time. That's what will be going on in Jerusalem at this time. And why is it like Egypt? Well, Egypt is what? The place of slavery, the place of of oppression. Egypt is always a picture of sin, a picture of our old life before Christ. 
before Jesus stepped in and rescued us from it. Jerusalem is going to become a cesspool of materialism, immorality, and oppression in the end times. Oh, Israel may be back in the land and they may have rebuilt their temple like we see at the beginning of chapter 11, but they'll be just as wicked as Babylon through their pride and through their unbelief. And this will be the message that the two witnesses preach. Repent. I know you have your temple. I know you think everything's fine again, but the reality is nothing's fine. You're still trusting in dead works. You're caught up in materialism. You're living in sexual morality. You're enslaved to sin still. You haven't changed at all from when you crucified the Lord. They won't like that message. (laughs) It's common practice in a Jewish community to ritually cleanse a dead body and then place it in a shroud very shortly after death. And so it's considered an honor to be a grave digger, especially if the deceased was known as a righteous person like these two witnesses will be. That none of this is done for these two individuals shows that the Jewish people of that time will despise these men. They will show them a great dishonor by letting their corpses lay in the open, and they will laud their deaths just as much as anyone else. In verse 9, it mentions how the world will react, and they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations, they shall see the dead bodies three days and a half, and they shall not allow, suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. You know, there are are numerous live webcams of the old city in Jerusalem, the Wailing Wall, the main street that runs through there. Wherever these guys are killed, wherever the the Western showdown occurs between them and the Antichrist, and the Antichrist wins, anyone with an internet connection can see all of it happen live. You know, we have news coverage these days, and just bam, it's right on there, because you just get with the local affiliate, and you stream it in. Anyone who wants to watch will be able to watch. And yet, the sad part is they're not just going to watch, they're going to celebrate. Look at verse 10. They that dwell upon the earth, that phrase, remember in Revelation, refers to unbelievers. It's literally, and the earth dwellers, those whose hearts and homes are are not with the Lord in heaven. Those who have said, we don't want you, Lord, we're making this earth our home, we want you out of it. Believers aren't going to celebrate, but unbelievers are. The earth dwellers, they shall rejoice over the two witnesses. They'll make merry. They're going to throw parties. And they'll send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them who were earth dwellers, unbelievers. These days, there are so many ways to send gifts immediately to anyone in the world. You could do so through gift cards, through alternate forms of currency. I remember one time... uh, one of my kids needed uh, funding. They were out, out of the state. They needed, they needed some funds for something, whatever. And, and, and I was like, oh, man, how are we going to do this off? And Bev's just like, oh, we just have this app and boop. And now it's in there. And I'm like, that's, that's dangerous. <laughs> you could do so through gift cards, through alternate forms of currency, or even by subbing to their streaming platform. When this happens, there's going to be Facebook, Twitch, Discord, YouTube parties. As people celebrate an end to the plagues, these two men's brought upon those who refused to believe. They're going to think, we finally won. Our suffering is over. And yet again, one of the worst judgments you can go through is God giving you exactly what you want. God lets them win. And now that they've rejected their last opportunity to repent, the Lord's going to show them He let them win. 
and he's going to rescue his servants and judge those who harmed his servants. Verse 11, it says, and after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God, means just a breath of life from God, entered into them. There's no definite article there referring to the Holy Spirit, just a a breath of life, they're resurrected, and they stand up on their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them, you think? You're watching the feed, and all of a sudden, who's standing right there? I thought he's dead. Not no more. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, come up here. And so they, the two witnesses, ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. In the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell, and in the earthquake was slain of men 7,000, and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe comes quickly. We think we are so smart until we encounter the one who isn't limited by our limitations. We think we've figured so many things out. And then we encounter the one who has life in and of himself, the one who brings dead things back to life. Dead things, the greatest finality to human understanding. We have no means to bring someone back from death once they're gone. But the Lord is not limited by that. And so they stand up. Great fear comes upon them. A loud voice calls out from heaven that people hear come up here, and then they float up into heaven in the cloud while their enemies watch. I mean, what else are you going to do? What do you do to somebody who comes back to life after you've killed them? Kill them again? You've already seen how that story ends. Perhaps some may have wanted to try, but God follows their resurrection and ascension immediately with judgment. It says, and in that same hour, These events all occur in rapid succession. There's no time to do anything to the two witnesses. There's no time to cut the news feed or to take down the webcams. Everyone's seeing this. And then it hits. It says there was a great, a massive earthquake, and the tenth part of the city, a tenth part of Jerusalem is destroyed. And in the earthquake were slain of men 7,000. I don't know which part of Jerusalem will be affected by this earthquake, which part is destroyed. The last major earthquake to affect Jerusalem was in 1927, centered, the earthquake was centered near Jericho. Jerusalem does not lie on a fault, but it's near a major fault. That earthquake killed over 200 people, so 7,000 dead is an awful catastrophe for a city that's not on a fault line. And notice the response. The remnant were affrighted. The survivors were terrified. Those who aren't killed in this great earthquake, it means to become very much afraid, to be terrified. There's a quote by someone who's considered to be a very intelligent man. I do not consider this to be an intelligent quote. Stephen Hawking, when was asked about death, said, I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy story for people who are afraid of the dark. That is an incorrect statement. Real fear is not people who put their faith in a Savior who can revive our broken bodies. Real fear is the realization that defying that Savior brings real judgment. Real fear is seeing the dead computer come back to life because it's not a computer. It's an eternal living soul created by the living God. Real fear is hearing the voice of God confirming their witness, a witness you rejoiced in seeing silenced. 
And thus this real fear, not a fake fear that someone likes to imagine is out there and that's why people believe something. This real fear finally produces some real acknowledgement for it says those who survived the earthquake in Jerusalem, it says they gave glory to the God of heaven. The word glory here, it simply means to give deserved recognition. Now, is that this catalyst? Is this the catalyst that begins turning Israel back to the Lord? Is this the thing that causes them to defy the Antichrist when he, after these events, demands they declare their loyalty to him above the Lord by putting an idol of himself in the Holy of Holies? Is this what causes them to say no? No, we won't do that. I don't know. Giving God the recognition he deserves is not the same thing as placing your faith in Christ. But I do know this. Part of why God gives us what we want is to get our attention. These are the last seconds for people to choose in time, in history. This is it. When we read in the book of Romans chapter one where it says, and God gave them over, and God gave them over, and God gave them over, and it just keeps progressively getting worse. The whole reason that God gives them over is so that at some point, an individual will, like the prodigal son, look around at the, the pig pennies in and the, and the used up corn husks that he's eating going, what am I doing here? I have no business being here. That he finally come to your senses. Because the truth is, shouldn't everyone have looked around at each other and said, when they were celebrating the death of two individuals who preached God's word to them, shouldn't have they looked at each other and said, what's wrong with us? I feel like every time I go to any type of news website or see any news reported, I feel like those are the words that come out of my mouth. What is wrong with people? And it doesn't matter which side you're on. But no one's asking the question, what's wrong with us? No one in the midst of all the destruction and the evil and the wickedness and the horribleness and the sin and the vileness is saying, what are we doing? God turns us over to these things. He lets society get to this place so that finally some might come to their senses. The sad part is, they don't. Not until they rise from the dead and ascend to heaven. Then it finally slaps them in the face. Then they get the attention, or their attention is gotten by the Lord. You know, when you go to Jerusalem, you'll find numerous religious groups there who revere parts of Jerusalem. You have a large Jewish population, a large Muslim population, a large Christian population. And obviously, of those three groups, doesn't necessarily mean any of them are, are saved. None of them may really be walking with the Lord. But all of them revere people who ascended to heaven. The Muslims believe that Muhammad ascended from heaven, from the, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. You know, the, the Jewish people have Elijah, you know, who, who ascended to heaven right there in Israel. We have Christians who believe Jesus ascended right there from the Mount of Olives. And now they'll see it with their own eyes. These two witnesses rise up into heaven, followed by God's clear judgment via an earthquake. They'll know this is the Lord. There'll be no way to deny it. Is this that jolt that brings in a final harvest of Jews, Muslims, and other religious folk just before the seventh trumpet's blown? I don't know. 
All I do know is that this is the last moment. This is the last seconds of humanity's choice. Because verse 14 says, the second woe is past. And behold, the third woe comes quickly. Quickly, it means that which occurs in a short period of time. There are seconds left. There are very few moments left after this earthquake occurs. John says the second woe is past. Remember, the last three trumpets were called these woes. The word woe means a horrifying judgment. And these are indeed horrifying. It's gone. The second one's done. Time is running out. Pay attention. Behold means pay attention. Don't ignore what I'm about to say because your time is just about up. Just the last few sands are coming down to the bottom of the hourglass. And if you don't take the next step past mere recognition of God, if you continue to ignore him and live life on your terms, you'll be out of time to escape the final judgment. And so true to his words, verse 15, and the seventh angel sounded, quick indeed. There's no delay between these two things. There's a very short delay. And as a result, when the seventh angel blows his trumpet, there were great voices in heaven, loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The announcement is made that the kingdoms of this world, referring to this world, it means the kingdoms of, of, of the system, it means the systems, the practices, the standards that are associated with secular society. They are now stripped from them and they are become, they are given to the Lord and of his Messiah. Everything humanity has been in charge of on earth, everything that Satan offered Jesus when he was tempted in the desert, when he said, if you just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. All of that is now stripped from the world, stripped from the enemy, and it is placed under Jesus' authority by the Father. And thus, many kingdoms now become forever one. For it says, and he shall reign forever and ever. The phrase there, I love it. It's the strongest statement you can make of eternity. It means into the always of the forever. <laughs> I love that. Into the always of the forever. Whatever you can conceive of in your mind as being eternity, go farther. <laughs> go farther. Stretch it even farther. Jesus, who will never do a poor job of ruling, will never have the kingdom stripped from him. No worrying now if the next election goes your way. No disappointment when an elected official breaks a promise, switches sides, or has a moral failure. No concern because 800 different nations all have different leaders with different goals and different views of right and wrong. Doesn't that sound awesome? One person nodded. If you don't think it's awesome now, you will then. Look at verse 16. And the 24 elders that sat before God on their seats, they fell upon their faces and they worshiped God saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which are and was and are to come because you have taken to you your great power and you have reigned. We've already covered in the book of Revelation that the elders there are representative of the church. The songs that they sing are a song that only the church can sing. We are the only ones who've been redeemed out of every tribe and every nation, every kindred, every tongue. And so, this is our song. So like I said, if you don't think that sounds great now, you will then because you'll be singing this. You'll be saying this. You'll be worshiping. And why will you be worshiping? Because all the prayers of thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven will finally be answered. Because 
you have taken to you your great power and you have reigned. People often ask, if God is so powerful, if God is so loving, then why doesn't he stop all evil? And you've heard me say this a thousand times. It's an easy question to answer. I can guarantee you it's not because he can't stop evil or because he doesn't love people. It's because stopping evil means stopping you and me. Evil isn't everyone else. Evil isn't the other guy. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord tells us through his servant Peter, he says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is not slack concerning his promise of his goodness, of fixing everything in this world. He's made a promise and he will keep it. And so when it says that he has taken that power unto himself, when it says here that uh, it mentions, uh, for you have taken to you your great power, we give you thanks because you have taken to you your great power and you have reigned. God promised a day would come when he would fix everything and now it's here. Now he's going to take that which has always been his. He's going to now intervene and interject. He's going to stop all evil. And as John tasted when he ate that scroll, it is sweet, but it is bittersweet. Look at verse 18. And the nations were angry. They're gonna hear this announcement that playtime is over. You don't get to do things whatever you want anymore. You're not in charge anymore. You don't get to just rebel against the Lord and do whatever you want anymore. And the response when they hear this announcement will be rage. The word their anger means to become furious, to become full of anger. How dare you take our freedom to do as we please? How dare you stop us, God? Psalm 2 is a passage of scripture that talks about this moment in time. We read it in our scripture reading and I'll reference it again now. In Psalm 2, the songwriter asks an important question. He says, why do the heathen rage? Why do the nations rage? Why do the people imagine a vain thing? Why do they begin to plot and plan a, a, a worthless thing? What are they planning? Verse two, Psalm 2.2, 2, the kings of the earth, they set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. There's gonna be a big, huge rally where they're all gonna come together and go, we can take them. I know we can take them. Let's if we all just put ourselves together. You know, you can do anything if you put your mind together. You can accomplish anything if you just believe. And then the Disney dream comes to an end. The absurdity of it. Verse four says, he that sits in the heaven will go, really? He'll laugh. He'll have them in derision. Really? And then his words will say, you can do whatever you want, but verse six, yet have I set my king upon my holy hill in Zion. Doesn't matter what you do. Doesn't matter how much you rage. It's not that the Lord's gonna see all this anger and all this rage and go, wow, they're really upset. Maybe I should rethink this. I mean, none of that. They will set themselves against the Lord, and the Lord will just go, okay, do your worst. It's not even difficult for me to tackle you. 
it won't be hard for me to put you down. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, you are my son. This day have I begotten you and ask of me and I shall give you the heathen for your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It's pure idiocy. John tells us they are angry. But then he goes on to say in Revelation chapter 11, and the time of your wrath has come. It's not going to stop it. It's not going to stop it. We can... The crazy part is, is that I realize that the United States is just one part of the world, but man, in our culture, you can see the rage. It's everywhere. It's all this empty rage everywhere, you know? I will be heard. You're going to listen to me. You're wrong, you know? It doesn't, again, it doesn't matter what side you're on. You just yell, 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 and all this rage. That's all worthless. It's all going to come to naught. Because whatever man tries to build here, the Lord's going to knock it all down and put Jesus on the throne. It's worthless rage. It's a waste of time. God will bring his judgment upon anyone who doesn't believe. Doesn't matter what political party you belong to. If you're not a believer, it doesn't matter. And we're going to see this wrath poured out during these last few years of the Great Tribulation. People, listen, hell's not an easy topic to talk about. Judgment's not an easy topic to talk about. It's not a, a fun Sunday, you know? But the reality is, is coming. I hear some Christians say, I just can't conceive of God punishing someone for all eternity in hell. I can't either. It's hard for me to conceive. But you know how I know it's true? Besides the fact that the scriptures just come out and say it? I know it's true because the last three years of the Great Tribulation, God doesn't just go, oh, I'll just take care of them, wipe them all out, let's go on. He takes all that time to pour judgment after judgment after judgment on them. There is something about the wrath of God, about the righteousness of God that we cannot comprehend that requires a judgment of time. This is why Paul said, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. He didn't say, well, knowing they'll just be annihilated someday, or knowing they get a second chance after death, or knowing that, well, they'll be in hell for a few weeks. No. He says, knowing the terror of the Lord. I don't understand it because I know it's coming. And based upon that, we persuade men so that it doesn't happen to them. The nations can be angry all they want, but wrath is coming. If you don't know Jesus today, wrath is coming. And he doesn't want you to experience it. That's why the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believe in him should not perish. That's the point, is that if you don't know Christ, you're gonna perish. Instead, he wants you to have everlasting life. Now, John goes on to list a bunch of things that these elders mention that are going to occur 
now that Christ is going to be in charge. It says, not only is your wrath going to come, or your wrath has come, but it also mentions the time of the dead that they should be judged. So, yes, the living will be judged over a period of time. For three years, they're going to experience God's judgment on earth. Then it mentions the unrighteous dead will be judged as well. That's eternal judgment. That will occur at the great white throne judgment after Jesus reigns for a thousand years. Then he mentions here that you should also give reward unto your servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear your name, small and great. So the idea here too is that whether you're a, you know, a, a, uh, a hero or you're just some unnamed believer, Jesus is going to reward all believers for their faithfulness when he does return. Revelation 22 verse 12 says, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. These are a lot of events that are going to occur, and this lets us know here that the elders are praising the Lord for multiple things that happen in the future. They aren't saying all these things happen as soon as the seventh trumpet is blown. Uh, This is why even though the seventh trumpet occurs right around the middle of these seven years, uh, that's not the end of the great tribulation. It's the end of humanity's time to choose sides. Jesus doesn't actually return for quite a few more years. Judgment is just the first. God's wrath on the living unrighteous is just the first of many future things mentioned here that don't happen immediately. I bring this up because some teach that the seventh trumpet brings us to the end of the great tribulation and then it just rewinds and goes back a bit. The Bible doesn't say it's rewinding, so there's no reason for us to think it's rewinding. It does not. What the seventh trumpet does is it brings us to the end of humanity's choice. What comes after this is God's judgment on those who make the incorrect choice and continue to fight him. And then to those who repent, there'll be great rewards. Now, God's judgment on these rebels will eventually culminate with a final destruction. He will destroy them that destroy the earth. He will come, the word destroy means to completely destroy. But the second word for destroy means to continually corrupt or ruin. God created humanity to be the crowning gem of his glorious creation. He gave mankind dominion over that creation and look at what we've done with it. All we've done since that time is continually ruin it. And so because of this, every part of mankind is both individually and corporately guilty before God. I I can't argue, well, I'm better than others. That's That's what they did or that's what that country did or that's what that group did. I can't argue that I'm better because I didn't stop them from doing what they did. And I certainly can't argue I'm better individually than anyone else because the standard's Christ, and I don't measure up to that. Either way, the point is you need a Savior. I need a Savior. And since those who angrily resist God's decree to give the world to His Son don't want a Savior, there's nothing left for them but destruction. And thus, the final work of God during this awful time begins. In verse 12, it mentions, or verse 19, it mentions, the temple of God was opened in heaven. John was in the throne room earlier in Revelation, but at some point his perspective changes to being outside God's throne room. And thus here he sees the doors to the temple swing open and he sees the Ark of the Covenant inside. The Ark of the Covenant is God's throne. That's why the cover of the Ark is called the mercy seat. Isn't that a funny thing to call a cover? You don't usually call it a seat, but it's his throne. And the reason the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned here instead of God's throne is because the Ark was a symbol of God's faithfulness to the nation of Israel. And when the Antichrist kills the two witnesses, we also know that that's exactly the time he turns on the Jewish people. 
And so that brings about a response from the Lord. And so John sees the ark that he will act on behalf of his people to defend them. And it mentions there was lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. So more worldwide destructive storms. This is almost the same as the storm that ravages the planet after the seventh seal, except this one includes an extra element, destructive hail. So, God bless you. Happy Sunday. As the worship team comes up and we get ready to take the Lord's Supper this morning, Psalm chapter 2 verse, or Psalm 2 verse 1, it asks an important question. Why did the heathen rage? Why do they imagine a vain thing? It's a good question. You know, maybe you've been stubborn toward the Lord or maybe you've been angry with the Lord. Well, Psalm 2 verse 12, it gives the solution to that. And it's not necessarily getting God to do what you want. <laughs> In the end, the blessing is good, but it's not getting God to be the one who changes. It's you being the one to change. In Psalm 2 verse 12, it says, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. If you've been angry with the Lord or you've been stubborn toward the Lord, today is the day to stop, to kiss the son, to come towards him with laying all that stuff down because he doesn't want you to perish. He wants you to be blessed. And you know, that's why we who are believers celebrate the Lord's Supper, right? We have put our trust in him, amen? And we want to thank him for his great salvation. It's a time to remember what he did for us so that we don't have to be destroyed, right? That we're not under wrath anymore so that we might be rewarded instead. Isn't that crazy? We deserve wrath, but we're gonna get rewarded instead. And so as we're gonna sing and we're gonna meditate on and think about what Jesus did for us on the cross, let's remember what he did. Let's recommit ourselves to the prayer he commanded us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And let's purpose in our hearts to be those who seek to bring others into that kingdom while there's still time. Lord, we ask you now for a great boldness, a great awareness of, Lord, both the terror of your judgment and the amazing grace and love that you've shown by sending your son. As we meditate and think about, you know, and chew over, Lord, what you did for us in becoming a man and going to the cross for us, Lord, give us that love and that boldness and awareness of our need for grace every day and our need to share it with others as well. We give this time to remember you this morning, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.